with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this amazing event that not only happened, but is recorded in your word for our benefit. Father, help us to look at the temptation of Christ here and learn much from it and apply it to our own lives that we would learn how to resist like Christ did when he was here on earth. Lead me and guide me in every word that I speak and help our hearts to be open to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been discussing temptation in James in line with trials. And essentially what we've covered in James is who is the blame for our temptation. And we know that we can never blame God for our temptation to sin, but but how do we respond to temptation when it comes? I think that Jesus, as he was fully man, was the perfect example of how we are to respond to temptation. And this is what we will see In our text today. So, verse 1 Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew starts verse 1 with the word then. So, what happened before this? Jesus was baptized, and God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
And this was the start of Christ's earthly ministry. It was a declaration of who Christ is. In a manner of speaking, it was his earthly coronation. So after this event, Christ was led by the Spirit of God. Christ was being driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And notice he never does his own will. He always does the will of the Father who sent him. Now, why is he being led into the wilderness? The Spirit is leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, there's a lot going on here that we need to pay attention to. First, Christ, as our sacrifice for sin, had to come and live a perfect life in our place. He came to do what no man has ever been able to do. Adam, the first man, was supposed to live a life free of sin, but he was tempted and he sinned. Now Christ, who is called the second, our last Adam, has come to do what the first Adam could not do. And at the start of his earthly ministry, he is being led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan to show that he is not like the first Adam. second thing we should note here is that the Spirit was leading Christ into the wilderness where he could be tempted by the devil. Now, was God tempting Christ to sin by leading him into the wilderness where he knew the devil was going to tempt him? Now, we know from James that God never tempts anyone to sin. So why is God driving Christ into the wilderness for this to happen? He's doing this to prove Christ's obedience. God often allows you and I to be tempted not to make us sin, but to prove our faith. God, why don't you just miraculously pluck me out of that temptation? Maybe he has you there to prove your faith. You don't need to prove it to him, but maybe to prove it to yourself, to to see what you are really made of. Peter got to see what he was really made of. And remember what happened with Job. God allowed Satan to tempt him. He said, have you considered my servant Job? He did not do this to cause him to sin, but to prove his faith. So let's look at verse 2 where the stage is set. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now notice the difference between Adam's temptation and Christ's temptation as the second Adam. And this is something I pointed out in James. Adam was in paradise with everything he could possibly need. Christ was in the barren wilderness. And this is very important to note as it magnifies Christ. You see, it can be a lot easier for us to ignore temptation when we have full stomachs and comfortable surroundings. But if you really want to know what a person is made of, observe them once those comforts are removed. That's who they really are. Christ was an actual man who felt pain and discomfort. Imagine the the empty feeling and pain he would have had in his stomach after, after 40 days and nights of fasting. 
I mean, he is fully man. Every pain that we feel, he was able to feel as a man. Imagine Adam and Eve in paradise just strolling around with everything they could possibly need. And contrast that with Christ having absolutely nothing. Look up pictures of the wilderness where he was tempted. It is barren. Nothing there. Fasting for 40 days. Now, in this condition of being absolutely famished, in the complete wilderness, the devil says, what an opportune time to approach him. So verse 3, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And notice the first thing Satan says to Christ. If you are the Son of God. As I mentioned, the end of the previous chapter here, right before Jesus goes into the wilderness, what happened? God publicly declared Christ to be the Son of God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A voice came from heaven publicly Declaring that, and now Satan says, if you are the Son of God. What on earth is he thinking? You see, tempting people to doubt God's word is the devil's oldest trick. This goes all the way back into the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said... In other words, did God really say that? Did he, did he really say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Did he really say that? I mean, I don't think amnesia was around yet. So, of course, Eve knew exactly what he said. And she even confirmed to the devil what God had said. But notice how subtle Satan is. What is he doing there? He tries to cast little seeds of doubt into Christ before he makes his true agenda known. I love the way Alexander McLaren puts this. He says, The fascinations of the forbidden fruit are not dangled at first before Eve, but an apparently innocent doubt is filtered into her ear. He doesn't say, look at this fine fruit. He doesn't start with that. No, he starts with, did God really say that? McLaren says, and is not that the way in which we are still snared? The reality of moral distinctions, the essential wrongness of the sin is obscured by a mist of sophistication? There is no harm in it. Steals into some young man's or woman's mind about things that were forbidden at home, and they are half conquered before they know that they have been attacked. What a brilliant observation. In other words, the devil places seeds of doubt into our minds and causes us to doubt God's word. And because we start doubting, we are half conquered before we realize we are even being assaulted by Satan. <clears throat> Satan whispers in our ear, is this text really black and white? 
I mean, surely there, are, there has to be multiple interpretations of this. And he, and he whispers those things into our ears. And once we start that line of thinking, we are, we are half conquered by temptation before we are even aware of the attack. <clears throat> and Satan wants you to doubt what God has clearly said. Turn what is black and white into something gray. But how did Christ respond to this temptation? Verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Why did Christ not turn stones into bread? Eating bread is not a bad thing in itself. Turning stones into bread is not a sin if you are able to do it. And can you imagine the temptation of Christ? Thinking about fresh bread that he could miraculously make appear and eat to satisfy his famished stomach. But Satan, he could not trick Christ. Christ knew exactly what he was up to. The reason Christ did not eat or turn the stones into bread is because he recognized Satan's assault. In essence, Satan was saying, if you are the son of God, why are you fasting, starving yourself in a dangerous wilderness? This is no way for the son of God to live. If you really are the Son of God, you would have no problem turning stones to bread. But remember that Christ is doing the will of the Father. And his Father has him in the wilderness fasting. So Satan is ultimately tempting him to go against his Father. To satisfy his own needs and wants. To distrust his father's care for him. So Christ, by quoting Deuteronomy 8, says, Bread is not the thing that sustains me. My father sustains me. In a way, Satan is tempting him to doubt the goodness of his father. And is not this our temptation during trials? To, to doubt God's goodness. Satan is saying, why would your father have you in the wilderness fasting like this? He, he drove you into the wilderness. What, what, what are you doing here fasting? I mean, you're God. You're, you're the second person of the Trinity. What, what are you doing here? But perhaps God's plan for you is not good. But as James emphasized, God is the source of, of good. And Christ knew that the Father was the source of all goods, and so he trusted his Father's plan and said, My Father sustains me. And I want to draw attention to the way Christ responds here. Notice he says, It is written. In other words, he, he's saying, The Bible says. Now Christ could have spoken his own new words and they would have been profound. 
But instead, he directly quotes from the Old Testament. Why is this? I'll give you two reasons. And keep in mind that that as he is responding to temptation this way, he is leaving an example for us in responding to temptation. So the first reason he says it is written is because he was showing the sufficiency of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, Scripture is sufficient for all things. I don't have to go outside of Scripture to get some secret knowledge of how to deal with a situation or how to view a situation. Scripture is sufficient for all things, including responding to temptation. The second point is that Christ knew how to fight a spiritual battle. Ephesians six sixteen. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. His faith in the truthfulness of God's word was a shield to protect him from the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now what happens if he puts down that shield of faith? That's what the devil was tempting him to do. If you really are the Son of God, I mean, he said that, but is it true? And we put down that shield of faith and say, I don't know. And we are easy targets at that point. But Christ knew to, to keep the shield up. And Christ, knowing that he is in a battle, pulls out his sword and fights back with the word of God. Paul says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Dear friends, this is one of our greatest weapons while fighting temptation, and Christ is demonstrating it here. He pulls out the sword, and he uses it. And so he completely shuts down the temptation by quoting Scripture. But Satan is not a quitter, is he? He's a good salesman. He doesn't stop. So he approaches Christ from a different angle. Verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Notice what Satan does here. He starts the temptation the same way. If you are the Son of God. But now he adds, for it is written. Christ resisted the last temptation by quoting Scripture. So Satan says, okay, you want to quote Scripture? Well, I know Scripture too. And and he quotes from the Psalms. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But how does Christ respond to this? 
Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. MacArthur points out that in the first temptation, Satan tempted Christ to use his divine power to show that he is the Son of God. But after seeing that Christ would not do it, he is now saying, Oh, great Christ, you are too humble to show your power and prove you are the Son of God. But since you won't do it, and since you are depending on your Father here, jump down and display your Father's care. Let him save you. By the way, here's a Bible verse that says he will. Satan is once again tempting Christ to go against the Father's will. And now he's twisting Scripture to do it. Dear friends, if Satan can't get you to disbelieve God's word, the, the second thing he does is try to twist the meaning. Because after all, what good does it do if you believe the Bible, but your understanding of what it means is wrong? If you believe the Bible is the word of God, Satan will even try to use your, your strong faith of the Word of God against you by trying to make you strongly believe wrong interpretations of Scripture. And this is why it is important for us to not only know Scripture, but to know what it means. Dear friends, theology matters. Correct doctrine matters. And it has consequences. What do people say today? You know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Just be sincere. God knows you're sincere. That's what, that's what matters. Sincerity matters. I love how Spurgeon addresses this. He says, if you sincerely drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, but you must be right. If you sincerely give all of your money to one of the prosperity gospel guys, sowing a seed for bigger things, you're going to lose your money. Why? Because not being right has consequences. You, you have a sickness, but you refuse to go to the hospital. And instead, you go to Benny Hinn. Believe me, that is going to have consequences. You're not going to be healed. Wrong belief has consequences. Truth matters. But you see, Christ knew the proper interpretation of Scripture, and he recognized the assault. So he once again shuts the temptation down by using Scripture and obeying it. But Satan is not finished yet. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. After Satan failed to get Christ to sin by disbelieving God's word, he then twisted the scripture and tried to get him to sin by making him disobey God unknowingly. But when neither one of those temptations worked, he stopped beating around the bush and said, fall down and worship me. Now it all comes out. This is what he really wants. He wants Christ to worship him. And notice what he offers. 
He offers him all the kingdoms of the world. You see, he is seeking to keep Christ off the cross. He's saying, why wait to have what is already yours? Why get it the painful way? Why go to the cross? Just bow down and worship me. Your father is going to make you die to give you the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you right now if you fall down and worship me. Essentially, he is trying to keep Christ from the cross. I saw this Stephen Furtick video. I don't recommend you watch him. And he's, he's talking about how Christ going to the cross is a trap. The devil did not know, but it was a trap. He kept saying, it's a, it's a trap, it's a trap. No. The devil knew the consequences of Christ going to the cross, and he did not want him to go there. This is why when Peter said, far be it from you that you should suffer these things, he said, get behind me, Satan. This is what he said to Peter. Why? Christ was saying to Peter, you are talking like Satan right now. You don't know what you are saying. You are not mindful of the things of God. Me going to the cross is, is a thing that will redeem you. I need to go to the cross to save you. So Satan is once again trying to get Christ to go outside of the Father's will. Take, let's just take a shortcut to this. Why do it the hard way when you can do it the fast way? We all know better than that, right? Satan tempts us the same way. Instead of waiting on God, we try to do things our own way. Maybe this way will be better. Satan tempted Christ to stay off the cross and rule the world in a way that God had not ordained. And so once again, how does Christ respond here? Verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now notice that Christ had his sword and shield the entire time. Every single temptation was answered with, It is written. There was never any compromise. Simply, the Bible says. We don't don't have to talk about interpretations and talk about this and talk about that. The Bible clearly says. No no trying to obscure truth. Would it really be wrong for me to just turn this little thing into a piece of bread right now? Would Would it really be wrong? No. The Bible says. In verse 11, And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. And Luke's account tells us that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You see, the battle here was won by Christ. But he would have to continue resisting temptation until his death in order to die as a sinless sacrifice. The temptations would continue to come even in the Garden of Gethsemane. What a more opportune time than in the Garden of Gethsemane. But even there, Christ resisted going against the Father's will. And he said, if there's some other way, but but not my will, but yours be done. 
I want to close with two more points of application that I didn't point out in the text. Number one, we must know the scriptures. If we don't know what the Bible says, and not just know it, but have it impressed upon our hearts, have it memorized in our heads, then we are easy targets for temptation. Psalm 119, 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What wisdom there. So that when you go into temptation, the word of God just pops up. You know this is wrong. Red flag. This violates God's word. John Gill said the word of God is a most powerful antidote against sin when it has a place in the heart. Not only the precepts of it forbid sin, but the promises of it influence and engage to purity of heart and life. Not only does the scripture tell us that this is wrong to do, but it gives us promises of blessedness for resisting temptation. We must memorize it. It must be in our hearts. And the last point here is that we must resist temptation immediately. Dear friends, when temptation arises, we must not play with temptation, but respond, it is written. Did you notice that pattern with Christ? You see absolutely no hesitation. As soon as temptation comes, it is written. He never gives it a second thought. It is written. It is written. It is written. Never a second thought. There's a song by a band who I typically wouldn't quote in the sermon. But they have a song called Slow Fade. And one of the things I heard a long time ago from them struck me. They said, be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the string. That second glance. I think they capture that brilliantly. It's the second glance that ties our hands. The second look at temptation. Consider the difference between the, the, the foolish young man in Proverbs 7 when he's facing the adulterous woman. He's walking past her, her house and, and, and he's allowing her to, to entice him. He, she, she's kissing him. He, he's still resisting. But her enticing speech caused him to yield and her flattering words seduced him. Why was he not already gone? She had the attire of a harlot, and he knew it. She's trying to stop him and kiss him, and he's not running away. He's allowing her to, to flatter him, to entice him with his speech. Why has he not fled? And what is the end result of that? She ensnares him. He gives into sin. Now compare that to Joseph, who did not play around with Potiphar's wife, but as soon as she tried to seduce him, he fled, 
I, I don't care if I leave my coat there. I don't care what's there. As long as I'm not there, I'm okay. Difference, that is the difference. You are not as strong as you think you are. And you may say to yourself right now, if I were in that situation, I would never give into temptation in that way. Dear friends, pray to God that he never put you in that situation. Because you would see how weak you are. Untested strength, untried strength always seems stronger than what it truly is. But even Christ, as the perfect man, in giving us an example here, he, he resists immediately. He doesn't play around. He, he, he knows it's a trap. He doesn't sit there looking at the cheese on the trap and debating in his mind as to whether or not he should take it. He resists immediately. If we look at the bait too long, eventually we will stop resisting. Dear friends, may we learn from our Lord and resist temptation. Fight temptation with the word of God. May may we be aware of Satan's schemes and may we resist that we may live righteous lives. Let us pray. Dear God, we once again thank you for Christ, for saving us from our sins, Father, we often think about the pains of the cross. But Christ had to resist temptation every day of his life on earth. Temptations that that we cannot even imagine because we, we would have given in long ago. What a magnificent Savior. Father, help us to look at this as an example for our lives that we would seek to be like Christ. That we would use our spiritual armor. That we would not give in to all of the the temptation in our culture that, that tries to discredit your word. That we would not be fooled into thinking that only the unintelligent believes your word. Father, help us to see the sufficiency, the authority, the inerrancy of your word. And help us to use it in our daily lives, in our fights against temptation. Help us to desire to to live righteous lives. That we would desire to resist temptation. In your son's name we pray. Amen.